Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 37 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, October the 11th. First, I talked to Colin Anson, who created Pixevity, a photo management system designed to provide families and schools with a secure but accessible means of sharing photos and videos in a way that protects children's right to privacy. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. And then I talked to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver, analysing the RBA's decision to cut interest rates to 0.75%. But first, let's talk to Colin Anson. Well, Colin, uh, you're the CEO and co-founder of Pixevity. Uh, tell us about it. What is Pixevity? Um, Pixevity is a smart, safe, simple school photo management system. It's been designed with privacy by design at its core. And it uh, enables a school to efficiently collect, organise, protect and share media. For photos? Photos, videos. Look, it's a digital asset management system at its core, so it will handle any file type. It's just primarily photographic 
material is primarily there. And, and, and it is, it will handle video, of course, but we are seeing that schools that do take a lot of video content soon realise that they're not using it as much as they, they thought they would. Um, so primarily photography is number one. And I suppose uh, being schools, I mean, there's a lot of uh, potential risks and harm of mismanagement of photos uh, on children, isn't there? Yes, there is. Um, the interesting thing is that schools are becoming more and more aware of this. Uh, some are choosing to stick their head in the sand and others are embracing it and really running with it. Um, what we've seen is that technology has created a, a situation that really only technology can handle. There are thousands, and we're talking tens of thousands in some cases, hundreds of thousands of images taken and stored in and around the school these days. Um, and they have very little processes and policies around where they're kept, are they shipped uh, offshore, um, who has access to them, etc. Are there and are there issues though? Are there issues though in terms of um, in terms of uh, privacy laws? Uh, yes, um, Australian privacy principles are quite clear on what you can and can't do with photography or with with uh, images, and images primarily doing well, having to do with private information and potentially sensitive private information. Private information is your face. Uh, and really what it's boiling down to for schools is consent management. Consent has to be voluntary, informed, current and specific. And that poses a, a reasonable challenge for schools when you have hundreds of children, multiple parents, uh, all with different opinions. Um, and it is just too hard to be able to manage day to day photo permissions effectively in relation to Australian privacy principles. So Pixeverty was created with a consent module that takes care of that for them. So how does that work for individual parents? Okay, so a parent, um, a school has a desire to use content in, in many ways. It could be anything from a, a brochure to a yearbook uh, to Facebook. Uh, and there is a big difference between Facebook and a yearbook. Obviously one being printed, one being digital. Uh, and the risks associated. So a school will say, this is what we'd like to be able to do. It has to be very specific, and a parent will generally sign off against each one of those items. Uh, in Pixeverty, there are 14 different measurements against what a school would like to be able to do with the images and what a parent can um, sign off on. So as an example, a school would like to use a photograph of your child on the school's Facebook page with name tags. Now, you couldn't possibly deal with the amount of variables uh, unless you did have something like Pixeverty behind it. In our case, a parent can look at uh, what the school would like to be able to do and individually select yes or no for any of them, and it will automatically find the child in any of the media and place those privacy wishes against the asset. Right. So Pixeverty does the whole privacy arrangement itself. Is that right? It does. Um, like anything, though, Pixeverty is a tool, and if used correct, uh, correctly, then privacy compliance will come hand in hand. Uh, there is a lot more outside of a system that a school would need to do to be privacy compliant, but we've done uh, – part of our, our role we see with the schools – not just schools, but organisations we deal with um, – is to be ahead of the privacy game in relation to media, uh, which means it is a true privacy partnership. The organisation of, of photos, of media, uh, what you can and can't do with that media is bread and butter for us, but we need to stay ahead of the curve in relation to privacy law to ensure that, uh, firstly, that the digital footprint of children are being taken care of, that we do take care of children. Secondly, that choice is provided to parents clearly and concisely. Uh, and thirdly, that those wishes are adhered to. But, I mean, in terms of privacy laws, there's issues of uh, getting the correct level of consent, isn't there? 
Absolutely. Um, consent is what this is all about. An automated consent module. Consent has to be voluntary. Quite a few schools are still using the bundle consent or um, implied consent. Implied consent can uh, apply these days only if you have clearly articulated what you'd like to do with that media. And bundle consent is whereby there is one signature uh, across every single form of use of that content. Uh, and there's also the other one where, where they're putting consent into the contract, uh, the enrollment contract. Um, again, not being voluntary, that causes issues. With anything, consent really must be the key or the core of everything you do. It has to be very clear. You have to be very direct and specific. Uh, as, I, as far as I can see, I think your business would have quite a challenge selling people a solution to a problem that they don't think exists. Would that yes. be correct? I think initially, yes. Uh, I think there are oh, the schools we're dealing with and organisations we're dealing with do know that it is something they need to deal with. We've had many schools say, look, you know, this is going to open a can of worms. And effectively, there are quite a few incidences now where content has been shared without permission that's causing concern. And that the thing is with a privacy issue is it is intensely private. Uh, when it's resolved, often there are all sorts of agreements in place to keep it private. We are so selling a solution is not as hard as it sounds because the problem exists. They are more and more aware that the problem is there, and we're giving them a simple solution to be able to provide choice for their families. Um, protecting their children is number one, and there isn't a school around that isn't interested, or even a parent for that matter, in protecting children. So the solution itself uh, encapsulates it all together nice and easily, uh, and it enables a school to. Um, prepare, provide choice, and deliver on that choice. Which schools are you handling at the moment? Uh, well, generally, we don't um, share too much about the schools we handle. Um, the schools that I have been uh, working closely with at this stage are generally your uh, your grammar uh, level schools. Um, well, unless I ask for permission, if you'd like, I've got no problem going back to many of these schools and um, asking their permission to share those details with you. But these, uh, these are all private schools, obviously. Not all private schools. We do have a few public schools, and but primarily private schools. Our number, uh, most of our schools are in Victoria and Queensland. That's it's just an odd fact. How'd you get I, that? I believe that in. Well, I'm, I'm quite clear that in um, both of those states, they are more aware and more willing to do something to do the right thing. Uh, and I. Uh, quite potentially more issues have happened in those particular states. In independent schools, we are talking about Commonwealth law, not state. Uh, if we're talking about state schools, without a doubt, the Queensland Education Department and the Victorian Education Department are more active in this space and are more, well, they have policies, they have uh, privacy officers, whereas New South Wales doesn't. And I'm sure that that rubs off in some ways, whether it's the um, the communications out to the schools, whether it's um, just being uh, in the media talking about it. We had the Victorian chief of education talking about biometrics recently and how facial recognition shouldn't be put in uh, or use, utilized in schools. Uh, in actual fact, that was a short quote. He was saying that you need to do a privacy impact assessment. But in any case, uh, it seems that those two states are more aware of the issue at hand and want to do it right and want to protect children. Do you see it expanding to other states? Uh, yes. I mean, we do have uh, quite a few schools in New South Wales. Uh, we have, we've been dealing a lot with Catholic education. 
and in particular the uh, diocese around uh, the country, and that's reasonably evenly spread. Uh, the Catholic Education Commission and Independent Schools Association have a fantastic document, which is their privacy compliance manual, which is music to our ears because it is precisely how and why, more importantly, why we built Pixivity in the first place. So working with those institutions is national and it has been a pleasure to do so. We're also now in uh, New Zealand and Singapore. Again, very much along the lines of want to do the right thing, want to protect children. More importantly, we want one single safe location to store content. So potentially Pixivity could expand to overseas schools. Uh, We already are there. And we've been dragged there as opposed to actively going there. Uh, We have had our first school in uh, San Francisco call us, uh, and we're in the process of putting an office in Los Angeles. So uh, without a doubt, it is a global problem. In fact, I was recently at the large Edutech conference in Florida, and I was absolutely outstanding to hear I was surprised and I found it outstanding that they are ahead of us in terms of doing the right thing with privacy and photographs. And I would have always thought that in the US it would have been, well, we've got the Facebook and we've got, you know, we've got Facebook, we've got Google, we've got it all covered. Uh, In actual fact, it's completely the opposite. They know those systems exist. They've been using them for a while, but I think they're a little bit further ahead of the game when it comes to duty of care uh, and providing choice. Well, sounds like a fascinating business and uh, it sounds great that you're actually expanding overseas and Colin it's been wonderful talk to you thank you very much for your time thank you Leon absolute pleasure if I can ever help please give me a call and now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver Shane Oliver the uh, RBA has cut interest rates to 0.75 percent and uh, and there's more to come what's your view I think there probably is more to come uh, basically, the, the problem is that the economy, not in recession, but it's not growing strong enough to, to, to push unemployment down. And in fact, recently, unemployment has been rising. And that's a concern for the Reserve Bank because rising unemployment means probably weaker wages growth and makes it even harder for them to get back to their inflation target. So there probably will be more rate cuts ahead. The Reserve Bank used the term uh, or, or did say that it was prepared to cut again if necessary to, amongst other things, achieve full employment. And full employment is probably a long, long way from where we are at present, given that we've got almost 14% of the workforce either unemployed or underemployed. So I suspect that we've got a couple couple more rate cuts ahead. Uh, that'll take us down to 0.25% early next year. Beyond that, there won't be much point in cutting interest rates. We're already seeing the banks withholding increasing amounts of any uh, cuts. Uh, to, to, to try and maintain their profit margins. Um, but uh, beyond that level, I think the Reserve Bank would probably consider something like quantitative easing, which involves pumping money directly into the economy. I, I don't see them going negative on interest rates. A lot of talk about that, but I think that's unlikely. It would just scare people. Banks wouldn't pass it on anyway because of the negative impact on their profit margins. But quantitative easing is looking increasingly likely in this context. Uh, of course, quantitative easing did not have that great an impact on the American economy when it was introduced. A lot of debate about that. I think it did. I think it helped. Uh, don't forget the uh, US unemployment rate and indeed the Eurozone zone unemployment rate fell quite substantially 
through the periods of quantitative easing, um, at which point in time there was no fiscal stimulus. You know, from 2011 onwards, there was a lot of fiscal austerity, you know, fiscal cutbacks, both in the US and Europe. And uh, despite that, unemployment uh, in both fell quite sharply. So it did help. Didn't get inflation back to the target, though, but it did help. The Fed uh, got so confident that uh, in 2014 they ended quantitative easing. Um, But, of course, it was all blown apart again by uh, President Trump's uh, trade wars this year. So I I think it would help, but it's not necessarily the the best way to go. And there are issues in Australia that uh, quantitative easing would involve buying of government bonds by the central bank. Um, whereas the problem is, I mean, that's aimed at pushing bond yields down, keeping them down and keeping interest rates down. The problem is that uh, most Australians borrow at the short end anyway. Most Australians have variable mortgage rates. So uh, falling long-term bond yields wouldn't necessarily be any huge benefit to Australian households, given they're borrowing using short-term interest rates. So uh, the benefits of quantitative easing, I think, would be positive, but they wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be as helpful for Australia as other things. I think the real thing that needs to be looked at is more fiscal stimulus coming out of Canberra. And, of course, the government doesn't seem to be moving in that direction uh, because they're, very, they're hell-bent on their surplus. They are at present. The focus is on achieving that surplus. Uh, We got very close in the last financial year with the final numbers coming out with just a a wafer-thin deficit, actually non-existent. It rounds to 0% of GDP. Uh, So that's a good achievement. It's taken us a long time to get there, though. The last uh, surplus we had was back in, uh, I think, 2007, 2008. So that was a long time ago. But we finally got there. And yes, I can understand why they're still focused on delivering a surplus. But if push comes to shove and unemployment continues to rise, I think the government's focus will shift towards maintaining strength in the economy. And um, the next opportunity to review that will be the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook review, which is in December. So about uh, a couple of months away before we will see that. Um, And there is some chance they might deliver more fiscal stimulus. But in the meantime, all the pressure still falls back on the Reserve Bank. They have an inflation target. They also have a full employment target. Um, Those things are not being met. And uh, their mandate is to do something, not nothing. Of course, the Reserve Bank is under enormous pressure. And and they actually, Philip Lowe actually flagged this in his statement because of uh, what's happening with the Fed. And uh, for that matter, the uh, ECB went into negative territory. That's right. Uh, Governor Lowe basically saying they can't ignore what's going on with global interest rates. In more normal times, if Australia was in the midst of a mining boom or a housing boom or whatever, uh, then you could argue that it's not that that important. We can go our own way. But in this environment, we really want an Australian dollar to be relatively low. At least we don't want it going up a lot. But if the rest of the world is cutting interest rates and we don't, then that would see the value of the Australian dollar go up, uh, which is something the Reserve Bank doesn't want to see at present. So consequently, they have to be conscious of what's going on globally. The ECB has been easing further into negative territory, flagging a, a restart of quantitative easing again. Uh, the Fed's been cutting and will probably continue to, to be cutting interest rates further. Um, those things put pressure on the Reserve Bank to, uh, to ease here as well. Um, otherwise, it will see a stronger Australian dollar. And, of course, Donald Trump is pushing the Fed to go down to zero. 
Donald Trump may be saying that. Um, I don't know that the Fed will will do that straight away. <laughs> I mean, he says a lot of things. I, I think the Fed's been putting a lot of pressure over the last 18 months or so. We, we, at the start of last year, we saw a massive fiscal stimulus in the US at a time when the US unemployment rate was very low. And uh, that arguably pushed the Fed to raise interest rates more than would otherwise have been the case. Then Donald Trump came along and ramped up the trade war, which has led to slower growth in the US. I think that's the main reason why the US economy has slowed. Businesses don't know where to invest. They lack the confidence to invest because of these trade wars. Uh, consequently, uh, US growth has slowed. And uh, now the Fed's under pressure to cut rates again. So it's uh, it's become very difficult for the Fed. It's not just Jerome Powell at the Fed. There's a whole bunch of Fed presidents, regional presidents, who are, are resistant to aggressive rate cuts. I think Powell is actually in the dovish camp. I think they'll probably cut in October, their October meeting later this month, and also in November, in December. So we'll probably see another 2.25% cuts this month. But I don't think they're going to, get, going to be going to zero straight away unless we see much weaker economic data out of the US at this stage. That's probably not warranted, but I do think that further easing is warranted. Uh, what was interesting was in a speech that uh, Philip Lowe gave the, uh, that night in Melbourne, he actually talked about the prospect of economic shocks ahead. Uh, what's your view about that? There's always the risk of economic shocks. Uh, you, you don't really want them to happen now because <laughs> there's already been a few. Uh, yeah, obviously, issues in the Middle East around the oil price, although the oil price has since settled down again. Issues in Hong Kong, around China more generally, uh, and obviously ongoing issues coming out of the US, usually involving Donald Trump, President Trump. So it's not the sort of environment where you want to see uh, economic shocks coming through. Uh, the world is already a bit of a fragile place, I think. So I can understand why Philip Lowe is a little bit concerned about that. I don't think it's uh, catastrophic. I don't think the situation is, is that bad globally, but it is pretty uh, tenuous and there is a lot of uncertainty around and that's that's not a good thing. You know, we sort of yearn for the days when, you know, the most exciting stuff for economists to look at was the economic data, but now you've got to keep an eye on all these, these geopolitical things as well, which seem to be throwing a bit of a spanner in the works and, and arguably causing uh, a lot more volatility in investment markets than would have been the case, say, five, ten years ago. Well, you've got all these various other things. As you said, you've got the Middle East, you've got uh, the trade war, and you've got impeachment proceedings in the US, which is all going to affect markets in a very big way. They, they Yeah, they all have the potential to affect markets. Uh, to some degree, those things are sort of priced in. Issues in Hong Kong are not new. The Brexit issue is not new. And impeachment has been talked about for a long time. But they all have on their own this potential to sort of cause volatility. Uh, I, I, I kind of think that if the UK does have a, a hard or no-deal Brexit, they come out of, the, out of the EU without a deal, then that would be disastrous for the UK in the short term. They might get over it on a long-term basis, but in the short term, it would probably knock the UK economy into recession. Uh, wouldn't be as bad for the rest of Europe because only 5% of EU exports, 6% to be precise, of, UK, of EU exports go to the UK, but it would still be a bit of a dampener. Um, the, likewise, the tensions regarding Hong Kong, if that flares up with uh, the Chinese army becoming involved, then that would be seen as a, a major problem as well. Hopefully, uh, that won't happen and there'll be some sort of compromise here somewhere. The impeachment issue is a big one. I guess we all think back to... Uh, 
President Nixon in the 1970s uh, and also President Clinton. Now, both of those two episodes give conflicting signals. You know, the episode regarding President Nixon saw a sharp fall in uh, share markets, but that was a bit complicated because at the end of the day, he was never impeached. He resigned before Congress uh, brought impeachment proceedings against him. And uh, that was also complicated because we had the OPEC oil crisis at the time. It was a time of economic malaise. And I guess the uh, turmoil in Washington added to that, but uh, it would have been bad anyway. Then the, in 1998-99, it was the other way around. You know, We had a bit of a fall on the back of the LTCM hedge fund going bust. And then through the, the purity of the impeachment of President Clinton, US shares actually rallied. And then finally, he was cleared by by Congress, which I guess brings us to the to the nub of the issue here. As things currently stand, it, you know, it's quite likely that uh, President Trump might will be impeached by the lower house because Congress is controlled by the Democrats. But uh, it then has to go to the upper house, the Senate, and in the Senate, you need a two thirds majority to convict the president and remove him from office. And as we saw with Clinton, that's uh, that's hard to get. The Republicans control the upper house, and as things currently stand, uh, I suspect they're not going to agree to to remove him from office. Um, if there was clear evidence suggesting that to Ukraine, you know, we're not going to give you this American aid unless you uh, conduct an investigation of Joe Biden and his son, then that that would be uh, a lot worse. But I, I don't think we're going to get Republican senators over the line to vote for his removal from office. But the, point, the issue, though, is that along the way, uh, this could, there'll be lots of noise around impeachment. This will just add to that, add to the uh, the, the volatility in markets. Um, and so it's certainly not helpful. It'd be better if this w wasn't happening from an investment point of view. But uh, yeah, it will be something that adds to volatility, even though at the end of the day, I, I think he probably won't be removed from office. Well, Shane Oliver, that's certainly something for investors and the Reserve Bank to watch out for. And uh, thank you very much for your time again. My pleasure, Liam. Have a great day. So what's happening in the news? Well, don't hold your breath waiting for any breakthrough in trade talks between the US and China. Chinese officials are signalling that they're increasingly reluctant to agree to a broad trade deal pursued by President Donald Trump ahead of negotiations this week that have raised hopes of a potential truce. It also coincides with America's Commerce Department announcing that it will add 28 Chinese companies and government bodies to an export blacklist for their alleged role in repression in China's Muslim-majority western region of Xinjiang. In meetings with US visitors to Beijing in recent weeks, senior Chinese officials have indicated the range of topics they're willing to discuss has narrowed considerably. Vice Premier Li He, who will lead the Chinese contingent in high-level talks that begin Thursday, told visiting dignitaries that he would bring an offer to Washington that won't include commitments on reforming Chinese industrial policy or the government subsidies that have been the target of long-standing US complaints. At the same time, Trump's extraordinary request for China to investigate the Bidens potentially offers Beijing crucial leverage in upcoming negotiations as it seeks to end the trade war with the US. It also mirrors his 2016 comments as a presidential candidate when he invited Russia to release the emails of his Democratic opponent, Hillary Clinton. Any trade deal struck with the world's second largest economic power would be subject to immediate scrutiny and raise questions whether Trump offered Beijing beneficial terms in exchange for dirt on his political rivals. The moves suggest a whole lot more than tariffs will be on the dinner menu when Chinese Vice President Li He visits Washington for trade talks with his US counterparts. 
And in Australia, the decline in house building eased in September, even as apartments and engineering work contracted at a faster rate, collectively pulling the construction industry into its 13th straight month of decline, the latest performance of Construction Index shows. The index, based on a monthly survey of construction industry purchasing managers, a leading indicator of activity, fell 2 points to 42.6 last month, dragged lower by sectors such as weaker apartment construction and infrastructure-related activity. The index comprises a balance of respondents saying conditions are better than the previous month with those saying they are worse. A score of 50 indicates no change, while above 50 shows growth and below 50 indicates contraction. The further from 50 median, the faster the pace of growth or decline. And as I said, it's now in 42.6. And after falling 2.6% in August, ANZ job ads recorded a small gain of 0.3% in September. This saw the annual decline fall to 10.4%. In trend terms, job ads fell 0.2% for the month and 10.9% for the year. And the Morrison government's post-election honeymoon with business is over, with the respected and long-running NAB business survey finding a drop in business confidence and little change in the below average conditions in September. Conditions edged up marginally over the month while confidence dropped. It is the sixth consecutive month business conditions have been stuck below the long-term average and they're well below levels enjoyed a year ago. Business conditions have been below their long-term average for the more than six consecutive months and are well down on this time last year. Retail, manufacturing and construction are three sectors that are continuing to struggle. Employment is holding up but the growth in new jobs is slowing. And get used to low interest rates for a long time. A Bank for International Settlements report says interest rates will stay lower for longer and force institutions like the Reserve Bank of Australia into more unconventional policy to boost economies. The BIS, known as a central bank to the world's central banks, has been growing increasingly concerned about the state of the global economy. It found that a series of substantial global trends would mean central banks were more likely to be forced into ultra-low rates for extended periods of time that would also increase the use of unconventional policies. Its research into unconventional monetary policies such as negative interest rates and the creation of money to buy government bonds that were used in the aftermath of the global financial crisis follows criticisms in some economic circles about their unintended consequences. The bank found that while there were some negative impacts such as encouraging people not to save, Unconventional policies in general prevented the financial crisis from becoming a much more deep-seated economic downturn. And after soaring as much as 21% in 2019, Australia's benchmark stock gauge is beginning to tumble. The S&P ASX 200 index has broken the uptrend it's been in since the end of last year, and it's slipped back below its 50-day moving average. And Australia is rich and dumb and getting dumber. The Australian economy lacks complexity and struggles to develop the industries required to maintain its place in the upper echelons of a developed world, according to Harvard University's Atlas of Economic Complexity. Having been lulled into inaction by the resources boom, the nation's companies have struggled to innovate. The enormous wealth generated by iron ore, coal, oil and gas masks and probably contributes to an economy that has failed to develop the industries needed to sustain its position among the top ranks of the developed world. On the primary metric used in the database, an index of economic complexity, Australia fell from 57th to 93rd from 1995 to 2017, a decline that is accelerating. Australia's top trading partner, China, rose from 51st to 19th over the same time frame. Singapore has broken into 19 new global industries in the past 15 years to 2017, while Australia just entered seven. And the Morrison government should increase New Start by nearly $100 a week, KPMG says, 
with the accounting giant calling for an even larger rise for welfare groups and arguing the low rate of the payment tears at our inclusive social contract. In a submission to a Senate inquiry into welfare allowance payments, KPMG said the current rate was too low to help people meet their material needs, such as eating to a healthy standard, keeping a roof over their heads, maintaining clothes for interviews, and travelling to Centrelink appointments. An increase would benefit the economy by stimulating spending, particularly in regional areas, the firm said, because New Start recipients spend, rather than save, almost all they receive. To avoid what it called a socially damaging state of affairs, KPMG said the government should raise New Start to 50% of the minimum wage and 80% of the age pension. And the federal government is pushing up power prices for consumers instead of bringing them down with its picking winners policy of funding some energy projects, according to the Grattan Institute. In March this year, Energy Minister Angus Taylor announced 12 projects to be underwritten with taxpayer funds, ranging from upgrading coal-fired power stations to building new hydro plants. The Grattan report rates six of the projects the government has picked as dubious. These include pumped hydro projects proposed by BE Power in Queensland, Hydro Tasmania and UPC Renewables in New South Wales, as well as a gas plant in New South Wales owned by Australian Industry Energy. The report shows none of these yet has development approval, there isn't a clear need for them, and in three cases it's unknown how much power they would actually contribute to the grid. Delta Electricity's Vales Point coal-fired power station upgrade is the only project the government is underwriting where the Grattan identifies a clear need. And BHP has told investors its oddly controversial decision to invest $400 million US trying to mitigate the greenhouse emissions of its customers is all about preserving markets and creating long-term shareholder value. In its address to shareholders in London, Australia's biggest miner has vowed that social value considerations such as climate change and water policies will underpin its future business decisions alongside financial considerations as the company reinforces its goal to remain sustainable and competitive in a rapidly changing world. And Telstra is the latest company seeking to increase the skills of its workforce by forging university partnerships. As part of a new $25 million training package, the telecommunications giant will use workplace coaches to strengthen staff in skills, practice and mindset. But it is the new university partnerships that will lift this training to an industrial level of output. From the end of this year, the University of Technology Sydney will begin teaching Telstra employers big data, machine learning and artificial intelligence. From February 2020, micro-credentials and software-defined networking will be offered to staff in partnership with RMIT University in Melbourne. And from next April, micro-credentials and cyber technology will be offered through the University of New South Wales. And Deliveroo's new Australian Chief Executive, Ed McManus, has grand plans to expand the food delivery platform into groceries. Amazon led a US $575 million or $850 million Aussie funding round for Deliveroo in May. And the new CEO said the delivery platform was looking to expand beyond cooked food. Meal kit platforms like HelloFresh and Marley Spoon already offer home delivery of groceries, but Deliveroo believes there's still room to expand. The food platform has invested heavily in its additions or dark kitchens, built specifically for online food deliveries, and recently launched its Restaurant Revival to help restaurants on food procurement and data to curate their menus. And ANZ's half-year cash profits will be hit by a $559 million customer remediation bill, the bulk of which relates to products and services the bank is not offloading in its planned wealth business sale to IWF. The bank 
informed the Australian Securities Exchange that costs emanating from its remediation program will run to $405 million after tax for fee and interest calculation and related matters in its core retail and commercial banking businesses. And Nine has pushed through the threshold it needs to take over radio broadcaster Macquarie Media. Nine announced it had increased its holding in Macquarie to 92.8%. This came after venture capitalist Mark Carnegie agreed on Friday to sell his 3.6% stake to Nine at its $1.46 per share offer. Nine, which owns a financial review, now has the 90% it needs to compulsorily sweep up the rest of Macquarie's shares. And the media regulator has launched an investigation into the complex set of holdings Wincorp owner Bruce Gordon has had in rival regional television broadcaster Prime Media. The Australian Communications and Media Authority has been examining Mr Gordon's interest in Prime for the past month after the corporate regulator forced the media mogul to sell down his economic holdings to less than 20%. The investigation by ACMA continues, but the media regulator would be likely to conclude Mr Gordon did not intentionally exceed the maximum 15% of voting shares he is allowed to own in Prime. Rather, the breach was an error because of a middleman who did not correctly execute a swap with the Swiss bank, Vontabel. ACMA is to release its findings soon. Mr Gordon's total holdings in Prime has been unclear until the notice in September detailing a request by the Australian Securities Investments Commission to reduce his exposure. Mr Gordon is prevented from owning more than 10% of Prime securities by the rule barring an owner holding more than one television licence in a market. And a non-bank lender expected to float on the stock exchange by the end of the year signed up 100 real estate agencies nationwide to tap what it sees as a major business opportunity, lending to cash-poor homeowners preparing to sell their properties. Money Me, which has positioned itself as a fintech company offering fixed instalment personal loans worth up to $25,000, introduced its new list-ready service after identifying a hidden potential in real estate advertising. The move may also motivate more listings as reluctant vendors wait for further house price increases to make their move. Money Me's idea is to allow vendors to borrow up to $25,000 through their real estate agent for or minor repairs in the lead up to selling their homes. Repayments would be postponed until after the house is sold. And clothing prices are set to rise as a trade war between the US and China pushes up retailers' sourcing costs, compounding the effect of the weaker Australian dollar. Many Australian retailers are hoping the trade war will lead to spare capacity in China and therefore better deals from Chinese suppliers, as major US companies such as Macy's, Gap and PVH Core shift away from China to cheaper countries such as Vietnam, Bangladesh and Cambodia. But sourcing costs are likely to rise as Chinese manufacturers close factories and increase prices in an attempt to protect their bottom line and Australian retailers do not have sufficient volumes to replace the loss of sales from major US chains. And former Blue Scope executive Jason Ellis has been charged with two counts of inciting the obstruction of a federal official as part of an alleged cartel case. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission said that charges have been laid by the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions and related to actions allegedly taken by Mr Ellis during the ACCC investigation into alleged cartel contact by Blue Scope. That cartel investigation is a subject of a separate civil cartel proceedings filed by the ACCC against Bluescope and Mr Ellis, a former general manager of sales and marketing. ACCC chairman Rod Sims said it was the first time any individual had been charged with inciting the obstruction of a Commonwealth official as part of an ACCC investigation. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Ben Ravel, who has introduced winebuyers.com. He's made a difference to e-commerce wine retailing. It's a case of tech meets old school, with a wine club that offers consumers a chance to buy wine at the same price direct from the supplier and which lists over 50,000 wines and spirits. Working on a completely transparent model, wine buyers do not mark up prices or charge commission on any item sold 
enabling customers to buy wine at exactly the same price as they would from the supplier direct. Wine buyers makes its revenue from charging suppliers a subscription fee and, and custom-built APIs automate the entire process. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors Chief Economist Alex Joyner analysing the RBA rate cuts. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.